So in our study today, Jesus is talking about false teaching. He's asked by his disciples when Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple and not one stone being left upon another, which happened on the temple mount in Jerusalem. The temple mount's still there, but it is bare of the temple. And they asked him, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? And Jesus's first response was, be careful that you are not deceived. For many deceivers are going to go out and they're going to deceive many people. And so Jesus tells us, first of all, that the responsibility of not being deceived rests with you. I have the responsibility of me not being deceived. You have the responsibility of you not being deceived. I, as a pastor, certainly have an interest that you're not deceived, but you're the only one who can make sure that you listen to what Jesus is saying and that you are not listening to people who wrongly divide the word of God, who are trying to tickle your ears, who are doing things for certain reasons. False teachings always have a hook in them. There's something that they're trying to gain from you. There's something they're trying to get from you. Even if it is just your following, they're trying to get you to be to have allegiance towards them. And let me just say, you may love a pastor and I hope if I'm your pastor, I hope you love me. But your allegiance is to Christ and always to Christ and to Christ and Christ first and to Christ alone, because that's where my allegiance lies. I love you, but my allegiance is to Christ and we do what we do for him. And so he said, be careful that you are not deceived. Now, this is the passage where Jesus is going to talk about the end of the world. He's going to talk about the last days. He's going to talk about eschatology, the theological word for the, the, the last times teachings, the kind of the system by which we look at what the Bible says about the last days. And it is very powerful uh, as I, I want to, first of all, read this passage. Then I want to read a passage out of Matthew 24, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21 are all the same event. It's called the Olivet Discourse. It is the longest answer that Jesus gives to any question in all of the Gospels. And it has to do with the end of the age. And there's a reason for that. And we're going to see a little bit of those reasons in these two verses that we're covering today. So let's read Luke 21, 7 and 8. Those are two verses. And then I want to read Matthew 24, 3 through 8. And you're going to see some differences. And it's the same account. Why are there differences then? People sometimes point out, well, these are contradictions because it says he said this in Luke and he said this in Matthew and he said this in Mark and they're all three different. Remember, first of all, Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples in Aramaic. And this is written in Greek. That's the original letters were written in Greek. So there's already a translation before we ever get to the, the manuscripts. And so that accounts for some of the differences, just as when our our English versions of the Bible are having to make decisions about what word they use for the Greek word. They had to make decisions for what Greek words they would use for the Aramaic words that Jesus spoke. That accounts for some differences. Plus, they, they have a different view. They heard they heard Jesus say the same thing, but they emphasize other things as they write it. If you are an investigator and you roll up on a scene and all of the witnesses give you the exact same story with the exact same comments, you know there's funny business going on. When you see first-person accounts that tell you slightly different versions with the main part being the same, then you know that there's some truth that's taking place, and that's what they look for, and that's what we find in the different accounts of the Bible. They may be slightly different, but the main important parts are the same. So anyway, with that aside, let's read the first uh, two verses here of Luke 21. It says, so they asked him saying, teacher, 
But when will these things be? The stones being scraped off the Temple Mount. And what will there and and what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? At the end of the age, it adds in Matthew. So they're really asking two questions. I don't think they thought there were two. They thought the destruction of the temple and the end of the age were going to be the same. You and I know that the destruction of the temple has already taken place in 70 AD and that the, the future yet is yet to hold the end of the age. So we know that there's a gap and we're going to point and we're going to see as we make our way through this passage that Jesus lets them know, hold on your horses. A lot's going to happen between now and the end of the age. He lets them know that. He lets us know that as well. So let's read it in Matthew 24, same account, but from Matthew, who was there, Luke interviewed people in Jerusalem and put together an orderly count of the things that were happening. Matthew actually was sitting there on the Olivet Discourse, and he wrote this. Now, as he sat on the Mount Olives, a Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in various places. All of these things are the beginning of sorrows. Now, first of all, you will hear people say, Jesus doesn't give any signs of the times in this passage. And I understand what they're saying, and I agree with them to a, to a, to a point. Yes, wars are not a sign of the times. Pestilence are not a sign of the times. Famines are not a sign of the times. Many people have wrote that they are, but they're not. But he does say at the end of this passage, these are the beginning of sorrows. The Greek word for sorrows here is pain in childbearing. Now, I've been in the room when three children are born, my three children. I know what it's like when Lisa got that first pressure. Someone told me that those first ones were Bracton Hicks. I think they might be something different. But what do I know? I need to stay in my lane, right? Stay in your lane, Robert. You get out of your lane. Woo, things get a little crazy. Stay in your lane. But they just are kind of like pressure. Just kind of like at first, like, oh, my, my stomach feels tight. Really? I mean, feel, oh, yeah, it does feel tight. <laughs> By the time the baby's coming, if you're holding her hand, your fingers are crushed. They're screaming. There's, there's begging for epidurals. Can you give me anything else now? They become more and more intense. And so what Jesus is saying is these are the beginning of birth pains. He's saying that things are going to happen slowly, but as time goes on, they're going to become more and more intense. And that's what we've seen. And I want to suggest to you today that we are in the middle of a contraction right now. It started with COVID. It came out of COVID to the inflation and to the economy going bad and the recession that we are probably in now. We haven't had a confirmation of that. We've had a confirmation in one way, but not in another way. Again, I'm going to stay in my lane. So we're in a contraction. No wonder there's so many people saying, Jesus is coming back right now. He's coming back today. You better be ready because he's coming back because they're in a contraction. But if you are to look back in history, there have been contractions in the past. Imagine if you were alive in 1948 when Israel became a nation after Hitler had done what he had done to the Jewish people. And then they were brought into the land and every nation around them, Jordan, Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, attacked them. 
literally all the nations around Israel, when they declared themselves a nation in May 14th, 1948, they were attacked immediately, all out war in Israel. And we know what the Bible says about war in the last days in Israel. It was a contraction. And everybody was like, it's the end. This is it. It's, it's going to birth the tribulation period. It's going to birth the rapture of the church. But then things calmed down. Then there was another contraction that hit in the 60s. Then those things calmed down. Then there was another one that hit in, in, around the 80s. And, and in 1973, when, it, when Jerusalem came under control of Israel, or, or 67, when it came under control for the first time. So you see my point. So Jesus might not come back in the next few years, even though things are crazy, even though we couldn't, can't imagine it. Because we see it going up, like it's a chart going up. And we don't see it stopping, but the contraction could peak and then have a time of calm which I think God gave to ladies to take a break before they have to push again, right? It's like, collect yourself, get some strength, get some rest, because here we go again. Ah! And so we will get into a calm, most likely. Maybe this will be the contraction that births the tribulation period and the rapture, maybe. But maybe not. If you just want to go by the sheer number of how many contractions, there are probably not. Because there's only one contraction that brings forth the child, just one. All the other ones do what they're supposed to do, but only one brings forth the child. And that'll happen someday. God's not slack concerning his promises, Peter said, but God desires all people to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. And to, to God, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. So God's waiting for the right time so more people can come to Christ. That's what he's wanting to do. That's why we need to be about the business of seeing people saved, seeing people commit their lives to him. So now let's come to Jesus's statement. I want to read verse eight in our text. This is Luke 21. Take heed that you are not deceived for many will come in my name saying, I am he. So many are going to come saying, I'm Jesus. I am the reincarnated Jesus. We've seen it over and over again. And the time has drawn near. How many deceptions have been brought into the world by people saying the time is near? We are the Mormon church of the latter day saints. And they focused on the latter days, which caused people to get into it. And we'll talk about some of these deceptions. Jesus says, for those who say the time is drawn near, therefore do not go after them. Why would he say such a thing? Don't go after those who are saying the time is near. Because why do you think the Bible says that the angels and not even the son of man know when the, the son of man is going to return? Why do you think the Bible says that? For us to know, we don't know when he's coming back. And, and if you are a person that's telling people, you know, when Jesus is coming back, stop it. Jesus said, don't go after them. If you're that person hear Jesus, and if Jesus says, don't go after them, don't get caught up in, you know, there are signs in the, the moon and the stars. Yes. But be careful that you don't get caught up in the, this is the fourth blood moon of the fifth triad of the sixth Shemitah and go, this is it. Jesus is coming back. All of those things are interesting and you can read them and that's okay. Just know that we don't know when he's coming back and people are so bizarre. They'll say, well, the Bible doesn't say we know the hour or the day, but we can know the week. I even have people say we can know the two days. We don't know the hour or the day, but we know two days it's going to happen. You are missing the spirit of what is being said when it says you don't know the day or the hour. It means you don't know when Christ is going to return. It will be a surprise. Jesus said, I am coming at a time that you do not expect it. 
Now, I'm a little ahead of myself, so we'll get back to that, okay? Hold, hold that place, and we'll get back to that in a moment. But what I would like to do now is talk a little bit about false teaching and what the Bible has to say about it. I just want us to get a sense of what the Bible says about false teaching and how we can avoid it. And I realize that there are some of you here that may have been brought up in a church that had false teachings. There may be some of you here that may defend false teachings. And I want to encourage you again, where's your allegiance? Let your allegiance be with Christ. Let your allegiance be with the truth. That's what we want to know. And approach the Bible to find out what the truth is instead of approaching the Bible to find support for what you believe. That's always a mistake, a surefire way of being wrong. You may indeed be right if you believe something and approach the Bible to find support for it. But most often you're going to be wrong when you are trying to figure out what you believe and then looking for support in the Scriptures. Turn to the Scriptures to be able to find out what the truth is so you can know what you believe. So I'm going to just read a few passages to you. John, 1 John 4, 1 says, <clears throat> Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test those spirits. This tells us there are spirits behind every teaching. There is not a teaching, genuine or false, that doesn't have a spirit behind it. Proper teachings have the Holy Spirit behind it. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. That's the Holy Spirit that inspired Scripture. It's a demonic spirit if it's some other belief. And this is why we don't want to believe false things. We don't want to get caught up in them because we don't want to believe something that is a doctrine of demons. <clears throat> it goes on to say, whether they are of God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. And testing the spirits, again, it goes on to say, if Jesus came in the flesh, so many false teachings deny the deity of Jesus. The kingdom of the cults do that. It's the way that we define what a cult is in the church if they deny the deity of Jesus or they try to make Jesus into a different person. They may try, um, for example, again, I don't want to pick on the Mormons all day, uh, but the Mormons will say, we believe Jesus is God and we believe the Father is God and we believe the Holy Spirit is God. But they don't believe they're one. So they will say things to make you think that what they're believing is okay. They believe that Elohim was a man on another planet that progressed to Godhood and then he got his own planet, made a bunch of spirit babies with a bunch of wives that he has up in heaven and has populated the earth. That's not what we believe. And, and there's a spirit behind that. Now, Colossians 2.8 says this, Beware, lest anyone cheat you. And if you are believing a false gospel, a false doctrine, you are being cheated. What are you being cheated from? The truth. Because the truth sets you free. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy, empty deceit, according to the traditions of, uh, of the basic principles of the world. Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, you teach the traditions of men as if they are the word of God. And there are people who do it today. Because something's been around as a tradition for a long time, they teach the traditions of men as if they are the word of God. We don't want to do that. And it says, and not according to Christ. We want everything to be according to Christ, Colossians 2.8 says. 2 Timothy 3.13 says, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. As time moves along, there's going to be more imposters and more evil men. There is a... An, uh, eschatology position that says that the world's going to get better and better and better 
And then we're going to Christianize politics. We're going to Christianize the world and then hand that over to Jesus when Jesus returns. That's the post-millennial position. We, and I'm going to speak for you right now, we are pre-millennial, believing Jesus is going to come back first and then establish a, a millennial kingdom. They believe that this is the millennium and that our job is to Christianize the world. This is... a and I'm not saying that all Pentecostals believe it. I'm not saying what Pentecostals believe is wrong or they're not brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm simply saying this is often a Pentecostal position. And a lot of uh, Pentecostal churches like Bethel and others have written a lot of songs we sing. And so sometimes we just have bad theology in our songs. When you hear them sing something like, build your kingdom here, bring your kingdom now. What you and I hear, the kingdom of God is in you and we're getting people saved and the kingdom of God is expanding. So we're singing, build your kingdom here. What they mean is, go out and Christianize the world. Let's see politicians become Christians and get saved. Let's hand a Christianized world to Jesus. Now, let me just ask you this question. Is the world getting better and better every day in every way? Or is the world what Jesus said? Jesus said there's a time coming that is worse than anything this world has ever seen and anything worse than it's ever going to see. That's a lot different than postmillennialism. Now, in all fairness, postmillennialism was very popular 150, 200 years ago, before Israel became a nation. And it's less popular now that they see that the prophecies of Israel becoming a nation became fulfilled literally. It's far less popular now. It's very popular in the early 1900s. It is far less popular now when people are realizing, oh, these are literal. Oh, Israel is not an allegory. It is literal. So things are going to grow worse and worse. And this is not just in false teaching, we're going to see it's with all of these birth pains. Um, and then uh, false teachers and the last days. There are two passages that tell us about false teaching in the last days, and you can remember them easily. It's 1 Timothy chapter 4, the beginning of the chapter, and 2 Timothy chapter 4, the beginning of the chapter. 1 and 2 Timothy chapter 4, the beginning, tells us about false teachings in the last days, both of them. So 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2 says, <clears throat> Now the Spirit expressly says, that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and the doctrines of demons. Now we're learning that there are demonic spirits that are behind it. That's, we're testing every spirit. Now we know there's doctrines of demons and deceiving spirits, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Now, a couple of things about this passage. First of all, that it says some are going to depart from the faith. We're seeing a lot of people deconstruct their faith today. They're saying, I'm no longer a Christian. And they use evangelicalism from, say, 1990 and on to say that they've done a lot of weird things. And I will say this. I, don't, I have a lot of problems with evangelicalism in the last 30 years. As a pastor in an evangelical church, I have a lot of problems with what evangelicalism has been. At times, it became synonymous with politics. You could not tell the difference between the church and conservative politics. That's problematic. And to some degree, there are churches that are still doing that today. It is far less than what it was happening in the aughts. And by the aughts, I mean the 2000s, all right? Just so you know for future reference. When I talk about the aughts, it's the 2000s. It's a lot less than that. And so when it says some are departing from the faith, they're deconstructing their faith because they see problems with the evangelical church. Listen, seeing problems with the church doesn't mean you deconstruct your faith to Christ. Christ is the one that you are, that you belong to. And a lot of people are deconstructing. A lot of them are people that have written our songs. And sorry to pick on our music again, but a lot of people are people that have written our songs or written book, wrote books. 
that are deconstructing their faith. And I will not deconstruct my faith. I will stand fast in Christ. I will reject human ideas that are wrong, but I will stand fast with Christ. And then it says that these guys who are teaching the doctrines of demons, lies and hypocrisy, have their own conscience seared with a hot iron. How can they teach something they know is wrong? There have been a lot of people in the prosperity movement. There have been a few, a handful of prosperity leaders that have had open repentance lately. They've actually got up in front of their bodies and they've said, I have been teaching this and it is wrong. Crefro Dollar is one of them. And he repented from his teaching on tithing and giving. That he was pressuring people to give and he repented from it. That's good. But then he went on to say that he's not turning from prosperity teaching. That God wants you rich. And he went on with that. Now here's the thing about, it says their conscience seared with a hot iron. I'm not going to judge Crefro Dollar. I don't know. But do you think he doesn't know 1 Timothy chapter 6? If anybody teaches godliness as a means of financial gain, withdraw yourself from them. Do you think he doesn't know that? How does he deal with that text? I would love to find out. And, and these others that are repenting in the prosperity movement that are repenting, I hope that this is a genuine movement. I hope they do repent. I hope they turn from this false teaching because it's a damaging false teaching. And you can only teach it if you, your conscience is seared with a hot iron. You, don't, you can only brag about your 15,000 square foot home and the planes you fly if your conscience has been seared with a hot iron. Now, 2 Timothy 4 gives you another passage on the last days and, and false teaching. It says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. This is people in general. The time's going to come when they don't endure sound doctrine. We live in that day where the largest churches are churches that don't teach doctrine by their own confession. I'm not a pastor, I'm a motivational speaker, says one of the largest churches in America. And people are going to that church. Well, then change the name of the church if you're a motivational speaker and not a pastor. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4 says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside towards fables. We are living in that day. Best-selling books are fables. Uh, popular, the most popular pastors are not preaching the truth of the gospel. I'm not saying they're not believers. I'm not judging their salvation. I'm not judging their eternity. That's not my job. God can do that. But I am saying that what they are teaching is wrong. And a lot of times they'll say, don't judge God's anointed. Well, I'm not judging you. And... You're misusing the word anointing like you're anointed and no one else is. I'm a special anointing from God. Well, you know, the Bible says God pours out his spirit on all people in the last days. So you're not the only one anointed. Everyone's anointed. And the pastor of a church is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to help you guys who are anointed to go out and do the work. There's no special person. And we'll get to that here in a moment. Now, just a couple more things. Second Corinthians 11, 13 through 15 says they disguise themselves as ministers. They're false teachers, but they disguise themselves as ministers. Listen to what it says. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing that his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. 
They look like Christians. They walk like Christians. They look like preachers. They, you say, I heard them. I heard them quote this. They quoted scripture. If I point out to someone one more time that this particular person they just told me about is teaching false doctrine and I tell them what the doctrine is and they say to me, but they quote scripture, I'm going to scream. <laughs> you, the devil quoted scripture when he tempted Jesus. You can quote scripture out of context. You have to rightly divide the word of God. You've got to read it in context. When you don't understand a scripture, context oftentimes will help you understand it. There, for example, I'll give you two examples. There's a, there's a passage in the Old Testament that says, go out, drink, be merry, party, enjoy yourself. Some of you guys who aren't Christians might hear that and go, huh? Didn't know the Bible taught that kind of stuff. But when you read it in context, it says, if you are not going to follow the living God, if you will not surrender your life to him, then go out and party and, and, and live in revelry and live apart from him. In other words, it's saying that's all you've got. If you don't live for God, that's all you've got. You might as well go out and give it all to that. It's not saying to do it. It's saying live for God. But if you're going to reject that, then live with all you've got. There's another passage in 3 John. And you want to look at verses 1, 2, and 3. But they'll only quote verse 2, which says, I would that you would prosper and be in good health. And so they say, God wants you to prosper and be in good health. And why not? Our God owns all the cattle on a thousand hills. God wants you to prosper. Don't you think he wants you to prosper? He knows you need money. You're a king's kid. God owns all the money in the world. When Mary and Joseph got little baby Jesus, some wise men came and gave him money. And when you get Jesus in your life, wise people are going to come and give you money. Don't you know that? I'm glad none of you guys said amen when I start preaching like that. <laughs> I could tell some of you guys were like, Ansel, you're getting that rhythm. You're like, oh, yeah. Preach it, brother. But the first verse of 3 John says, My beloved Gaius, I would that you would prosper in all things and be in good health. It's a letter from John to his friend Gaius saying, I hope you're doing well. I hope you're prospering. I hope you're in good health. The Bible says, above all things, I would that you would love one another. That's God's greatest desire for us. Instead, they take that verse out of context and use it to say something entirely different. Keep it in context. Now, um, what does it look like in the very last days? What is the last contraction going to look like? I'm going to take that these contractions, the last one is not going to birth in the rapture and the tribulation period. The last contraction is the tribulation period and it births the return of Jesus. That's what we're looking at. That's the, the birthing. So the last contraction is the worst. What does false doctrine look like in the, last, in the last contraction during the tribulation period? Well, there's a false prophet that arises to support the Antichrist. And it says of him in Revelation 13, 11 through 14, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb. Jesus said, beware of wolves coming in sheep's clothing. Another passage, they look like sheep, but they're wolves. They want to tear you apart. They want what's yours. They're coming to help you. They want what you have. And so he said, I saw another beast coming out of the water. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke as a dragon. This guy isn't a wolf in sheep's clothing. He's a dragon in sheep's clothing. And he will exercise all authority of the first beast in his presence and cause the earth and those who dwell to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So the Antichrist looks like he dies, has a deadly wound, but he revives and is healed. It's like a resurrection, mocking the resurrection of Jesus. And the beast 
The false prophet uses that to get people to worship him. It goes on to say, he performs great signs so that he makes even fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. So he does these miraculous things and people turn and believe him. That's the last contraction. That's the last thing that happens before Jesus returns to the earth. So let me just say this. Learn how to rightly divide the word of God, comparing scripture to scripture. Look for cross-references. Blue Letter Bible, Bible Hub, Gateway Bible. I prefer Gateway Bible. I, the other ones I use. But in Gateway Bible, you can turn on cross-references. Then you hover your, your cursor over the cross-references. It pulls up every cross-reference. Now, what does that do for you? That helps you to know where other passages are in the Bible address the same thing. So you can compare Scripture to Scripture. Just because one passage deals with a topic doesn't mean it deals with it in its entirety. And once you compare them all, you can get clarity on what's spoken. Compare Scripture to Scripture. Rightly divide the Word of God. It is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that the man of God could be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. Jesus also said, when I give you the Holy Spirit, He will bring to your memory all things that I told you. He will remind you of all of the things that I said. How can He remind you of the things Jesus said if you don't know what Jesus said? He can't remind you. That's why you read the Scriptures for yourself. That's why you own them. You don't let this be your only exposure to the Scriptures. You read it. You learn it. Listen, you can have it read to you now. You can, you can listen to the entire Bible. You could, in just a few hours, it doesn't take that long. You can listen, in about 30 hours, you can listen to the New Testament. A little, little less than that, actually. You can listen to the New Testament. Just, just put it in and listen to it while you're driving back and forth to work. Take the Word of God in. And you could do it right now if you want to. Take out your phone, go to your, your app store, and download a memory, a Bible memory app. Just put in Bible memory. You'll get a list of Bible memory apps. There are really good ones. And while you're standing in line, I said this on Wednesday night, but while you're standing in line, I'm going to use something different than Chipotle, uh, in Starbucks and you're staring at your phone, sometimes I'm staring at my phone and I run out of things to look at and I flip it back and forth through my pages. Huh? What do I do now? <laughs> Memorize scripture. Use the Bible memory app. They're really good. They've, they've got it down to a science now. Well, they'll give you portions of the scripture. They'll leave things blank. Memorize scripture. It's so powerful that in the midst of a crisis, the Holy Spirit will bring this back to your memory. And now you're using the word of God in the way that God means it. Now, two more things I want to cover. I've got to do it quickly. Um, number one, Jesus said, many will come in my name saying, I am he. And I was going to give you a list of people and kind of cover them, but I want to give you this instead. And again, you can do it now. You've got your phone out still, maybe get in a Bible app. Go to your search engine and look up list. Type this in. List of people who claimed to be Jesus. And you're going to get an entire list of people throughout history. On Wikipedia, it starts in the 1800s. You'll see how many there were in the 1900s. Men like David Koresh, Jim Jones, Sung Young Moon, and others who uh, Charles Manson, who claimed to be the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. And you might say, well, they didn't deceive that many people. Jim Jones had over 900 people kill themselves in the, in the People's Temple of Guyana, right? Or whatever it was that they called it. These guys were dangerous. And Jesus said, many are going to do it. Don't follow them. And listen, don't follow anybody that exalts themselves. Don't follow anybody who says, I'm a special person. 
I am Elijah. I've, you know how many preachers have said that they're Elijah? I'm Elijah. I'm come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Or I've got a special anointing. Don't follow people like that. Jimmy Swaggart believed that he was the one who was going to bring the gospel to the entire world. On his program back in the 80s, he had a map up behind him and he said that Jesus said the gospel will be preached to all the world and then the end will come and you could see how close we are to being all around the world and when we have our radio program around the world, Jesus is going to come. He didn't think he was part of it. He thought he was it. When you get into that, there's a problem. When you get into somebody thinking that they're that grand, there's a problem. People that say that they are Jesus, you can read through that list and you can see who they are and who they belong to. The second thing that he said is, if people say, I am about to come back, don't listen to them. And I want to give you a list of people who said that Jesus was going to come back on a certain date. I've already made my point that you don't know the date. In October 22, 1844, William Miller said that that was the last day that Jesus could return. And this led to the great disappointment. And if you've never studied the great disappointment, you should. It was that time in the middle of the 1800s when many people didn't plant their fields. Farmers didn't plant their fields. They sold what they had and gave it to people who were, gonna, who were not Christians so they could be, be saved during the tribulation period. And it came and went. Many people deconstructed their faith. Many people stopped being Christians. And from the Millerites came all kinds of false teachings. The Jehovah Witnesses, were influenced by the Millerites. Joseph Smith was influenced by the Millerites, um, who set dates as well. Joseph Smith set dates. He didn't set a specific date, but he set a time. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses set a date. Jesus didn't come back. Set a date. Jesus didn't come back. Set another date. Jesus didn't come back. And so they said he came back invisibly. <laughs> he came back. He just didn't come back so you could see him. But Jesus said, some are going to say, I came back and I'm in the inner room. If they say that, don't believe them. So my thing to the Jehovah Witnesses, you say he's in the inner room. Jesus told me not to believe you. Who should I believe? You, Jesus, you, Jesus. Jesus wins. That's my thing I do. Uh, uh, the Jehovah Witnesses, Sung Young Moon, said 1935, 1943, 1972, 1975. And before his death, Herbert W. Armstrong of the Worldwide Church of God said, before I die, Jesus will return. He died and Jesus didn't return. Seventh-day Adventist, and you've got to be careful with the Seventh-day Adventist because a lot of the Seventh-day Adventist churches have moved away from being a cult, living like a cult, and moved into what is, would be more what we do. They just prefer to meet on, on the Sabbath, and they don't judge you for meeting on Sunday. They see it as a freedom. So just because you meet someone who's Seventh-day Adventist, it doesn't mean that they're part of a cult. But there is a large section of Seventh-day Adventist churches that are cults. So you just don't know what you're dealing with. You have to talk and ask and kind of work through things when you're finding them out. But the Seventh-day Adventists have set dates for the return of Christ and they have their foundation in Millerism. William Miller was very influential in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Then we have Harold Camping. We have the guy that said 88 reasons for 88, wrote that little booklet. Israel became a nation in 48. He believed Jesus was coming back in 88 because the biblical generation is 40 years. Jesus didn't come back in 1988. So he wrote another book, 89 reasons for 89. By the time we got to 90, he stopped writing his books, I guess, because I never heard of him again. Then, of course, there's Harold Camping, and this is the one you probably are going to be the most familiar with. Harold Camping died in 2013-14. He said in 2011 that Jesus was going to return, and in 1994, and a lot of people believed him. Why would you believe someone when Jesus said, don't believe them? If someone is motivating you because of the last day's theology, 
to give your life to Christ, Jesus said, occupy until he comes. And we are, may just be in a contraction right now. Yeah, I mean, we get excited about last day's things during a contraction. But when it lays off, then, hey, we got to occupy. We just got to do the work that God's called us to do. I know this is a shock, but I'm late. So stand up with me and let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you that you speak to us about how to handle false teaching. And Lord, I pray that we would understand we have the responsibility not to be deceived. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would remind us, teach us, and help us. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.